You're a violet sky at the break of dawn. You're a bird in flight high above the sun. We're no longer numb. Iridescent Robot Storytelling Club. It is February 26th. It is my mother's 70th birthday, and I'm your host, Danielle K.L. Gregoire. So right now it's 5:30 p.m. where I am. And in an hour, I let in seven very excited storytellers into our virtual Zoom room to tell stories about food this month that focus on hope, resilience, and or hilarity. Our featured guest tonight is one I'm very excited about. Her name is Suzanne Evans, and she wrote this incredible book, uh, creative literary biography called The Taste of Longing, about a woman named Ethel Mulvaney, who was a prisoner of war at the Changi camp during World War II. And the whole focus of the book is this incredible woman's life. She's from Ontario, from Manitoulin Island. And she uh, claims to be the only Canadian who was in the prisoner of war camps. And the book sort of follows her life and how she ended up there. And then also how she harnessed a people's love of food in order to get them through two years of being imprisoned and starving and how she wrote well wrote compiled a book uh, of recipes that the starving prisoners of war were longing for during those times and when she got out of that situation she used this printed copy of the, the recipes that the women shared in prison to raise money to send food back to people who were still suffering from the ravages of war. So Suzanne Evans is gonna talk a little bit about her book and a little bit about her feelings around food. And we also have our resident storyteller, the storyteller who comes back every month, Adea Ajayi, out of Dallas, Texas. And I'm sure she'll have some update for us on how it was to live through uh, a snowpocalypse in Texas in 2021. We also have uh, B. Wilder, who is from Leonard County, which is the county that this show is, is recorded in, in just outside of Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Uh, she's a poet, a comedian, a clown, and a force of nature, and her stories are incredible. They, we have a storyteller named Renee Marshall, who uh, runs the audio listening mag, and that is uh, an, 
sort of an online magazine that takes stories and turns them into animations. And she is just an incredible human being. And I'm excited to have her on as well. We also have someone that is new to me. Uh, I've gotten into tasting chocolates because I can't go anywhere, leave my house, not really. And I decided in around Christmas time that for my my partner's Christmas present, uh, a celebration of them finally being here after two and a half years of separation by distance. They were in Seattle. I was here for two and a half years uh, and now we're married uh, that I would buy them the best chocolates in Canada. It was an idea that I had. And I went and I purchased chocolates from award-winning chocolatiers all across Canada. We've been tasting chocolates. And around February, which is Valentine's Day, all of the chocolates from all the award-winning chocolatiers were sold out. And I didn't know what to do. So I went to Etsy and I found this incredible chocolatier who makes these chocolates that are just I don't ever use the word sumptuous, but there's really nothing else I can say. They are just exquisite anyway. And so I tried this man's chocolates and I was compelled to write him. His name is Stephen Beaumont and he is from Windsor, Ontario. And when he wrote back, you could tell how much he loved making chocolate. And that led to him finding about out about the iridescent robot storytelling club and so there's a man i've never met who i've only tasted his chocolates he'll he'll be talking about his love of the culinary arts uh, on this and i just think that's an interesting thing that even during a pandemic we can connect over a shared love of something and this in this case it's my shared love of his chocolates <laughs> uh, so uh, another gentleman will be joining us from Seattle, Michael Lockhart, when I used to produce the Moth Seattle Story Slam, uh, he came there one time and there were no tickets left. And he said that he would wait at the Cuban sandwich shop around the corner just in case a ticket came up and that he really wanted to tell the story. And I, being the producer, waited just in case because sometimes people give out their tickets and, and one one person did. And so I trekked, I, I left the venue, I trekked to the Cuban sandwich shop and I gave Michael Lockhart a ticket. And that was the night that he won the moth. So he'll be telling that story this evening, which I'm very excited about and has a slight relation to food, which is our theme for the evening. We also have uh, Heather Paul, who is a, a grief group facilitator and an incredible writer and she's going to be talking about her relationship to food in her teenage years and there are so many wonderful people on this show tonight and I'm so excited that I will finally be able to bring my friend Adrian Cheater on the show she is going to tell a story about her connection with uh sort of a, an heirloom family recipe that she wanted to cook but wasn't able to until just recently and it's just a beautiful story so there's plenty of stories coming up and I have to go and get ready for the show but stay tuned and you'll get to hear those stories told live at the iridescent robot storytelling club on February 26th, 2021.
Hello. Welcome to the Iridescent Robot Storytelling Club. It is February 26th, also known as my mother's birthday. She will not be attending because she loves food. I'm not going to put the little addendum. She loves food and she loves me, but it is her birthday and it's her 70th. So she can do whatever the heck she wants. Right now she's eating crab legs, which are not very common in Northern Manitoba. So that is what she's doing. And I called her on her birthday and everything is great. <laughs> I also pulled my back tonight. So I am currently hosting on uh, naproxen, which is the generic name for your favorite muscle relaxants. So if I seem a little more relaxed than normal, but also not moving my back in a normal way, that is what is happening. So my name, Danielle Kale Gregoire. This eye I got in Seattle. It reminds me that I am being watched. <laughs> Tonight we have seven storytellers and our featured guest, Suzanne Evans, who wrote uh, one of my favorite books of 2020, a literary biography called The Taste of Longing. So if you stick around, and you should, because this show is going to go quick, it's going to roll, you're not even going to notice you've been here for an hour and a half, uh, stick around until the end to watch uh, her read from her book and also have a candid conversation because her and I have been working together since November last year, and we've been running imaginary feasts for small amounts of people. And it has been such an honor, and I'm really excited that this night is culminating sort of our friendship and our working relationship. And uh, I recommend that you go out and find a copy of the book immediately or wait until perhaps Suzanne's daughter reads it in the audio version. There's very exciting possibilities. So we have a great list of storytellers. I like to start the evening because it's a storytelling show and no one wants to be the first person to go. And I totally understand that with a short story. I was going to tell a fairly tragic story of how my eldest child stopped eating for three months, and then I realized that might be a little much. Uh, he was going to come tell the story himself, and then he got hyper anxious, <laughs> and so I totally understood. So I think instead I'm going to tell a small anecdote about how I didn't know what to get my spouse for Christmas. And this is our first Christmas really together since we got married. Uh, we were separated by borders and distance in a pandemic for two and a half years. We will have been together for five years in May. And they don't like things. <laughs> They're kind of like an anarchist, anti-capitalist human being. Uh, and they don't enjoy food, which is interesting because I, I, I love food. I am a food. If there's a beyond E, I am that person. I, I think about food almost every waking moment. <laughs> it's one of those weird things. So I tried to think of a thing that I could order on the internet that would allow us to get out of our bedroom and into our taste buds that both of us could enjoy. Uh, and I remembered when we would go to the grocery store, which was our favorite thing to do. We're sober people. And that's sort of, we would like go at midnight to the Metro market in Seattle and we would wander around looking at food, which is an enjoyable activity for me and became enjoyable for them, I think, because hanging out with me is good times. <laughs> uh, and I recognized that they had started buying chocolates, but like not the normal chocolates, not like a chocolate bar, candy bar. Uh, they would buy the grossest ones, the ones with like 
the like weird pink stuff that you're never quite sure what it is <laughs> and you bite it and you're like oh it's kind of sugar but is it is it cream I don't know what it is so they would buy those ones and they were always kind of disappointed in the chocolates but I could tell they were looking for something something different something to make them feel something because they had spent their entire life not enjoying food like at all um the onions which is a thing that people put in most of their foods tastes like uh, death to them. And that is really hard because I used to make, put onions in everything and I've had to learn to de-onionify all my food. And I'm like, how do we do this? <laughs> onions are an essential part, but love. Um, so I decided because they had eaten chocolate and as a choice in the past to order chocolate. And I started ordering chocolate from all over Canada uh, I looked up award-winning chocolates. Chatelaine had this list of chocolatiers you needed to try in 2020 who delivered. <laughs> and I went through all of them. And at 3 a.m., I would order a new chocolate. And by the Christmas time, we had had like 10 or 12 different boxes of chocolates. Uh, a salted caramel had changed my life. Um, I started ordering boxes of chocolates for my friends, and then we decided that we were going to do a podcast about just chocolate. And so in January, I ordered chocolate from the East Coast. It was good. And now I'm like judgy about chocolate, which I never thought I would be, right? Like, that's not cool. That's like a movie critic who's never written movies going in and judging movies. I don't like it. But <sighs> chocolate, it, it, <laughs> it started getting under my skin. And I really needed the perfect chocolate. Does that make sense? Like when you become obsessed with something, you're looking for that perfect chocolate. So in February, I don't know if you know it, there's this major holiday and people buy chocolate during it. Some people call it Valentine's Day. So I went to go looking for all the new winners of all of the awards, the Canadian Chocolate Awards, and every single chocolatier sold out. Everyone planned ahead except for me. And so I, like an obsessed person, went to Etsy, which I was like, can you buy chocolates on Etsy? Is that okay? Like, that's a crafting thing. Like, are the chocolates going to be top quality? Like, why am I looking for top quality chocolates? But I'm on a mission. And I've come across this, this chocolatier. And uh, the, the name of the chocolate place is Choc, just C-H-O-K, period. That's it. I was like, okay, okay, Chuck, what do you got? <laughs> and I sent my money and I got it before Valentine's Day. And, and it was because this person is, is in Windsor, Ontario, which is not that far away. But also I got the chocolates. We laid them out on the bed. We opened the box. They were beautiful, like tiny little pieces of art. And then they had a list, there was a list of like all of the ingredients and what was in them. And there was an Earl Grey lemon one. I was like, ugh, not into it. I hate Earl Grey and I don't like lemon. I'm not gonna do it. But as I'm eating them and each one is more and more perfect and more and more perfect. And my partner is enjoying them, like literally enjoying them. We're both just every single bite <laughs> is something to talk about. I go, I think I'm ready for the Earl Grey lemon. I think I can do this. And I bite into it. Ugh, y'all, I'm getting shivers. <laughs> this Earl Grey lemon chocolate 
is possibly one of the most perfect chocolates that I've ever eaten. And that's not the end of the story. If that was the end of the story, cool. You go buy chocolates from this person, whatever. But I was compelled to write this person a message. <laughs> you know, when you like a book or you watch a movie and you think, this person needs to know my feelings about the thing that they just made. And you wonder, should I have done that? You should, because if you genuinely love something and it's changed your life, you should message that person. And if they don't write you back, they have good boundaries. That's cool. No big deal. But at least they may have read it and found out that what they did in their life changed you. So I wrote this person a note and I get a response. And that response is, oh my goodness, I'm so grateful that you liked my chocolates because this is the thing that I love to do. It's not my job. It's my side project. And I was like, ah, and so we've been conveying, like communicating back and forth. And that person is here tonight. And I wasn't intending to be <laughs> an advertisement for his chocolates, but I am on a lot of a leave, y'all. <laughs> and if you can't afford Chalk's chocolates, oh, I think Kayla, I might have to mute you. If you win. <laughs> If you want them and like you approach me at like payday and you say, I'd love to try those, I will buy the chalk chocolates and I will have them sent to you. That is, I don't know how many people are on this call, 33 people. Mm, I probably can't afford 33 boxes of chocolates, just honestly. <laughs> but if you have your own money, you should find a thing that you love and you should go support local artists. And uh, yeah, that's my PSA, but also my story. Thank you, Stephen Beaumont, who is also here and who'll be telling a story later in the show about how he came to fall in love with the culinary arts. So welcome. I'm so excited that this one's about food, y'all. Like even with my back broken and not being able to move really beyond this point, this is one of my favorite things. And I'm so excited that we have Suzanne Evans from The Taste of Longing, that we have people from Seattle and Georgia and Texas and a small farm forest outside where I live in Ontario and Windsor. And I feel like I'm forgetting Winnipeg because I always do and we always do and it's not fair. <laughs> so tonight we're gonna get to our incredible storytellers and I'm just gonna let them tell their stories and I'm gonna let you fall in love with them and feel free to talk about stuff in the comments so that they can feel the love from you because in these days of being locked inside, this is the one thing where I feel like I've got to travel and do things. And I'm so honored that you would spend your Friday night here at the Iridescent Robot Storytelling Club. So thank you very much. Our first storyteller of the evening is our resident storyteller. She's gone through some stuff recently. She's in Dallas, Texas. And so I feel like we could talk a little bit about that before you go into your story, because we're probably all very curious how a Texan dealt with minus 10 Fahrenheit. That was Fahrenheit. She sent me a text and she said, it, I said, oh, thank you so much for converting to Celsius. And she said, no, that was Fahrenheit. And I realized that you were in minus 23 Celsius weather in Dallas, Texas, and it's not okay. <laughs> it's not okay. That's like Northern stuff. Like I don't even like that. And I, I'm from the North. So uh, a day, how, how are you doing? Good. It was quite an experience. I will say that. I think, um, yeah, I mean, it was quite an experience just because electricity kept going off. And so you just learn 
it would go off for seven hours and it would come on anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours. So like it would go off and then like at three in the morning, it would come on. So you'd jump up, you'd make your food really quick. You'd cut on the heaters, you'd do everything with electricity. And then it would go off and you would be like, okay, this is life now. And then you would wait for it to happen all again. So no matter what time it was, you would jump out of the bed and do it all over again. And then you just took a lot of naps and tried to stay as warm as possible. And my dog was like, probably, you know, he had on his coat and his blankets and I'd be like, come on, let's go outside. And he would be like, no, unless somebody goes with me, I'm not making that journey. So literally I would have to bundle up, go out with him. And then he'd do five steps, go to the bathroom and then be like, let's go back in. And I was like, I respect it. I respect it. (laughs) So, yeah, but no, it was good. We were really blessed. Some people, not as much, but we were really blessed. No broken pipes, no nothing. Yeah, I'm so glad that I messaged you right away. And I was like, okay, tell me that you're okay. Not that I can do anything from where I am. But I just was like, I'm gonna come I'll come shovel. I don't, I want to help. Yeah, no, it was funny, because at three in the morning, the power came on and my mom like asked me like, do you want a breakfast sandwich? And I was like, no. And she was like, this may be your only opportunity for something hot. And I was like, you're right, let's do it. So just things like that. But it was good. Wonderful. Well, I would like everyone. I know I was waiting for her to come because I was like, she's not missing your story. So I was waiting to see Pam before we actually got to the story. (laughs) Hi, Pam. It's so good to see you. Um, So I would like to introduce Pam's daughter, resident storyteller, incredible comedian, comedian, storyteller, my friend, Ade Ajayi. Um, So I love food. Like I really, really love it. And so I was like, what story could I tell? So I thought about the story of like this food truck in New York, which had like amazing food, which warmed me up and it was really dramatic and creative. And I was like, mm, okay. Then I thought about this like hole in the wall where this guy smoked a cigarette and made me the best burger I've had in my life. And I was like, that's good, but that's one of those, you kind of had to be there moments. Um, and so then I thought about just food in general, like the first time I felt like an adult going to get food. <laughs> And I want to remind you that I was probably 10, but I'm not 100% sure. But we lived in the suburbs and this new round up. So we went as a family. And the way that this memory works is it was so, (laughs) it was so imprinted on me. After we entered the restaurant, I remember nothing. I don't remember any other person in my family being there. I just remember me and my experience. (laughs) So basically we pull up, um, people open the door, they have on all black. There's a hostess. She asked how many people there are. She guides us to our table. There's literally like Italian decor. There's some kind of like Italian music on the, on the stereo playing. There's like a bar hidden behind like foliage. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is just like the soap operas. And then I see people like on dates, like sipping wine and like having like elegant evenings. And I was like, this is amazing. (laughs) I don't remember in my mind, any little kids, including my sisters, which I'm sure were there, but in my moment, this is all I remember. So the waiter comes, he introduces himself. He's like, thank you so much. I'm sure you guys are wondering about this great restaurant. It was called the Olive Garden. But let me just say, I was 10. It was amazing. (laughs) He comes, he introduces himself and he says, you know, I'll be right back. He comes back with personalized breadsticks. Okay. And this was 80s Olive Garden. So if you're younger than me and you went to 90s Olive Garden, don't use that frame of reference because 80s Olive Garden is when they were really trying, when they fully loaded that breadstick with like butter and garlic and like, <laughs> and salt. And they were like, we want to make sure you enjoy this. Like their, te- their tagline, we treat you like family. They had a grandma back there making these breadsticks, okay? 
then they had like a salad and the waiter would come and he was like, okay. Um, he looked at me and said, would you like cheese on your salad? What? Okay. I'm 10 at this point. I don't even know that much about salad, but he asked me, do you want cheese? Yes, I do. And he takes a grater and grades it over my salad. What's happening right now? I'm loving it. <laughs> he says, tell me when. And because I saw it on a Looney Tunes cartoon, I put my hand up and he stopped. And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> I'm an adult. <laughs> he leaves and he, he, well, he leaves and I'm sure he handles other people. Again, I remember no one else at the table except for myself. Um, and he says, we get down to the last breadstick. And I'm like, I got to hold on to this bad boy because I want to savor it with my meal. And as I see it and he sees it, he comes back with a whole fresh thing of breadsticks. What is happening? It's unlimited, okay? <laughs> I had never been to a place with unlimited breadsticks and salad in my life. I had the cheapest dad in the world. I didn't have to be like, hey, can we? No, this waiter knew he was ready. And then he brought the salad. He knew I liked the cheese. And he was like, and I was like, and he stopped. And I was like, this is where I want to live for the rest of my life. They hand me a menu. I didn't have to make decisions because they had a pasta trio. It had lasagna. It had the ravioli. You know what I mean? And so I was like, this is amazing. But I filled up on the bread so much that I didn't really enjoy the lasagna. I think I might've had three because you know the bread was really making an appearance that day. Um, and then, so when it, was, when it ended, he boxed it up in this little black box. And I was like, this is classy because he did it right in front of me. I'd never seen that before. Normally they hand you the box and they're like, do what you will. This man took it, boxed it up in front of me, gave me my own bag. Then when he brought the check, they brought out these chocolate mints. Let me just let you know, okay? 10 year odd day was living in a whole different world of class, okay? Let me tell you where they don't bring out mints. Chili's, Chuck E. Cheese, Luby's, all the places I've been before. They didn't bring out these chocolate mints. But here at the Olive Garden, not only did he bring them out, he noticed that I liked them. He said, do you want me to bring you more? Yes, I do. Because in this moment, I'm an adult. <laughs> and from the age of 10 to 18, every year for my birthday, I went to the Olive Garden. I refused to go anywhere else because that was my adult spot until I matured in my head. And so food is a lot of things. But in, for the Olive Garden, even though it's gone down in quality, and like I said, you might not remember it the way that I do, <laughs> We have a special relationship because that was the first time I had a real adult meal in a place where people went on dates and I loved it. So food is also an experience and I will never forget that experience for the rest of my life. Oh, day, I'm crying because it's so real, right? Like being treated like an adult for the first time at a restaurant changes your life. And like that, that guy got like a customer for life for Olive Garden. I wish we could find him and be like, thank you. <laughs> He did. He got 10 years of birthdays. I was like, this is the only place I'll go for my birthday. Right? Oh, amazing. Thank you. And I think that's a perfect start to our evening. It's just like that food sometimes is love, but it's also about like everything around the food and the experience of food. Um, and a lot of people have different feelings about food, but I think starting with love is a good place to start. So thank you so much. Give it up for a day. And you can come see her next month again or listen to her every month she's committed <laughs> to coming the fourth Friday to be a part of the Iridesa Robot Storytelling Club and every month she's going to tell a story and I just I love your story so thank you so much Aday. Coming up next you've already heard about him and I feel like I maybe went overboard and I I'm not sorry 
he makes really good chocolates. In fact, when he asked me if I could review him on Etsy and Etsy wasn't letting me review him, it would give me an excuse to order another box of chocolates. So maybe Etsy will let me review this box, two boxes. I did order two boxes. He's telling me secrets now. <laughs> I just, they're so good, Stephen. I'm sorry. So he's going to tell a little story about how he fell in love with the culinary arts. If you want to welcome with your hearts and your hands, the chocolate maker and writer and poet, Stephen Beaumont. Well, thank you, Danielle, and thank you for the, uh, the big plug earlier. This is, a, this is um, something I've never done before, I have, to, I have to admit. I'm a bit of a writer and a poet. Um, I usually pour over my words, and it's the first time that I've actually kind of done a, a story like this. So I've tried to adapt something that uh, I wrote about and been thinking about for a while, um, about my early career. Uh, I'm in the hospitality industry, and I'm uh, much older than pretty much anybody else I can see on this screen by a lot. Um, and uh, I've uh, been very fortunate that I've been able to work around the world. As you can hear I'm from my accent, I'm from the UK originally. So I thought I'd tell you a little bit about how I got into the business. Um, back in the UK, I was in high school. Um, the high school that I was at um, it was the sort of place where academic achievement was considered to be the, uh, the thing that everyone had to go for. You really had to graduate and go to university, preferably Oxford or Cambridge, unless you were like me and not really academic, and I wasn't. Um, there were two things that I was halfway decent at. Uh, one was uh, music, and uh, my music teacher told me, don't bother even trying to get a career in music unless uh, you want to be a teacher, and I didn't. Um, or, um, and um, the other thing was French. I was decent at French. Um, I had been um, to a uh, three-week stint in France when I was 13 as part of an exchange trip, uh, exchange program that was organized by my school. And uh, I really, really enjoyed that time. And I was in a biology class with a friend of mine, and we were dissecting frogs at the back of the laboratory. And uh, he asked me that perennial question. So what are you going to do when you leave school? I said, I have no idea. What about you? He said, I have no idea either. However, my brother, he said, uh, has just enrolled on a program at Ealing Technical College, which is in the west of London, um, to do hospitality management back Back in the old days, they called it catering, um, hospitality and catering management. Um, I said, okay, so what does he do? And he said, well, they, they, do, they do everything. They learn how to cook and to serve the food and to make the drinks and they learn about the management and, and he's probably gonna go and spend a, a year uh, in France which my ears pricked up because uh, the previous Easter, I had just spent three weeks in France and that had been, it's a little cliche, but very much a life-changing experience for me. Having moved uh, from the suburbs of London to go and live in this entirely different culture was, uh, it was absolutely extraordinary. Um, not only from the linguistic perspective, because we literally didn't speak any English the whole time that I was there. I didn't really get on with my, uh, my exchange um, friend terribly well. He, he had this uh, rather annoying kind of shrug um, and he sniffed a lot. He also had BO, but his parents were very, very nice people. And they were extremely good at uh, making me feel welcome. And I was in, in rapture over there. So uh, for the first four days, we, we went around Paris and we saw all the usual sights. But after that, they took me in the car and we went to the Loire Valley to their country house. Um, it wasn't a grand place. It was a very old uh, familial cat country property. Um, and you went off uh, the main, uh, main high street 
straight into their dining room, which was very austere, and then into this wonderful kitchen at the back that had a big iron grate and a, and a butcher's block. And from there, there was a very steep staircase up to my bedroom, which was right up in the attic. And I, I, I ascended this staircase. As I went up the stairs, I could smell the smells from the kitchen. And I got up to my attic and uh, the little room, and I looked out of the back and out of the back was this little fenced yard and uh, there were uh, pet rabbits and hutches around there. Anyway, it was wonderful. So the next day, uh, my, my pen friend, my exchange friend's name was Mark. His dad said, you guys go off and uh, fish. He gave us a bamboo pole and we went off to the little village um, bridge with our bamboo poles. I'd never fished in my life. And Mark showed me how to spit onto some French bread and to, to, to mold it around the, the hook. And we started fishing for minnows. Um, French for minnow is a veron. Um, and one of the first things I ever learned in French was the word for, for, for a minnow. Really, really useful word. Um, but I, uh, and he started fishing for these minnows and they were giving themselves up in a kind of suicidal manner. Uh, we dipped our rods in the, in the water and out came these minnows and we put them into a bucket. And soon, very, very quickly, this bucket was so full that these poor minnows were expiring through lack of oxygen. Uh, so I, I wondered what we were gonna do with them. But he led me back to his parents and we presented this bucket of minnows to his mother. And she said, you know, merci beaucoup. And we went off and uh, got changed. And um, we were summoned uh, about 20 minutes later. And there was this bowl, the platter of golden fish, an inch and a half long, golden and, and crispy. And there was lemon juice and there was parsley and the smell was amazing. And she presented them to me and I thought, what the, am I supposed to do with this? They've got their heads on, their tails. I mean, did she gut them? Did she fillet them? We, no, no, we started eating. They just ate them, head, tail, guts, bones, the whole thing. And I thought, okay, I'll do the same thing. And I started eating them and it was amazing. There was something so extraordinary about this experience of, it was, it was very uh, visceral um, and I this sense of achievement that I'd caught these things that an hour earlier, they'd been flo floating around in, in the water and I was eating these things and I'd never done anything like it in my life. And I'd never experienced anything like that in my life. And then that was just the aperitif or rather the appetizer. And then we had dinner and she came out with this huge black cast iron cauldron and it smells of sage and mustard and white wine as she lifted off the lid. And she dished out this meat onto the platter and there was a little rice that went with it. And I said, what are we eating? Oh, she said, c'est le lapin. And then I came to this very slow 13 year old realization that the rabbits that I'd seen outside of my window in the garden were not actually pets at all and that was my experience of France and that was what got me to decide that I really wanted to become a uh, hotelier uh, and I trained with the Savoy Hotel Group in London uh, even though I wasn't academic I did eventually win a prize at school and the prize was um, a what they call a book token I could go and exchange it for any kind of book I wanted and I'd, I'd taken up a, a part-time job in a local hotel. I started talking to the chef. He said, go and buy Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Of course, it doesn't look like that when you look at it in this kind of thing. But this is my original version of Mastering the Art of French Cooking. It's, I still have it. 
It's completely it's broken down. Such a beautiful book. <laughs> I and love it. You how you read that? But for 1975, that was my prize um, for uh, becoming coming first in my in my class. It was the bottom stream, so it wasn't really a great achievement. However, <laughs> this is my this is my book, the first book, and it's completely fallen apart. But I keep it to this day, and that's what got me into my hospitality career. That is incredible. I. I'm so grateful that you came. Stephen only joined our roster of storytellers last night late when I said, would you like to come? And he did. And he prepared that story because some stories are stories of the heart and you don't need a lot of preparation. You just know them. They're the things that changed your life. And I love that a bucket of minnows uh, changed yours. Those minnows we would have taken and we would have caught bigger fish with them where I'm from. But I have had kippers before, and I love the idea that you could just deep fry something and eat it all. It's easy. It's good. Oh, thank you so much, Stephen. I appreciate that. And feel free to go check out. You don't have to, but like I highly recommend it. Chalk, C-H-O-K, period, on Etsy. <laughs> and then just try one of the chocolates. Just, just the Earl Grey lemon. Just that one change your life promise thank you Stephen. and now we're friends i'm going to drive up to windsor and try that pizza that you had the shredded pepperoni <laughs> pizza because i love that it, that's what makes the windsor pizza windsor pizza just shredded pepperoni um coming up next is a good friend of mine her and i have known each other uh i more than half of our lives now we were in theater together she was 17 i was 18 uh we were in midsummer night's dream together um she played a good part and I played a fairy named Mustard Seed, <laughs> which is thematically good because Mustard Seed is something I now enjoy that I didn't like when I was a kid. So uh, she also happened to be part of the Imaginary Feasts that Suzanne and I hosted uh, in the winter time, in the dark of the winter. We got together and we talked about our favorite foods and Adrian was on the very first one. So, and this is a story that we've heard before, but that she has honed over the last few weeks. I'm very excited to hear it in its new format. If you could welcome with your hearts and your hands, the wonderful Adrian Cheater. Hi, thank you everyone. Um, yeah, so, oh, Stefan, that was a lovely story. The, um, uh, it, that from the heart kind of telling is one that I really love. That is how uh, the previous iteration of, of the story I'm about to tell came off um, and I was asked, can you get it down under seven minutes? Uh, so I <laughs> uh, went to uh, went to editing and cleaned things up and started with the transcription. So I'm, uh, uh, this might feel a little less uh, spontaneous than, uh, than the last time, but, uh, but I think it's also uh, gotten a little more solid, a little uh, uh, more of a, a storytelling story. So, um, and I just jump into it. And thank you very much, Danielle, for having me back. So here we go. Uh, as a fourth generation Canadian growing up in Winnipeg, I didn't feel like I had a rich cultural background to pull from. And my strongest link was to my Icelandic heritage on my mother's side. And so it's something that I've resolved to reconnect with. Her family grew up in Northern Manitoba, Flin And during World War II, my grandfather's family ran a fishing camp. As essential workers, they were afforded greater rations and didn't have to send their men to the front. So with spare sugar, eggs, and flour, they had the means to bake. And the story passed around was that my grandfather wooed my grandmother, in part, with cakes and cookies. 
When mom moved to Winnipeg, her parents made her promise to visit often, especially with the kids. Also, my grandparents loved the open road, so the eight-hour trip between cities was made often, meaning summers at the fishing camp, now turned Lakeside Cottage, and regularly hosting them throughout the year, but especially during Christmas time. The recipe central to Christmas and my Icelandic roots that I'm sharing today is Vienatarde. It translates as Vienna cake and is a seven layer tort of almond shortbread and spiced prune jam with almond vanilla buttercream icing. Beloved in my family and synonymous with gatherings, homemade ones made appearances at every Christmas and major milestone event. And by overwhelming request were even included alongside the catered cakes I had at my wedding. Our family was fairly progressive um, and my grandfather eagerly taught my cousin everything she wanted to know about hunting and fishing in the Northern Shield. However, past a certain age, there was a sense that the kitchen was the women's domain. And so I wasn't taught the traditional recipes or crafts, though I don't really recall if I declined, was dissuaded or was it was simply never discussed. Then in 2017, without warning, I realized that I am a transgender woman. Um, my mother had died of cancer three months before, and both of my grandmothers had passed years earlier. During that year, I also realized I'd become the matriarch of my family, the eldest daughter of the eldest daughter, but my mentors were gone, and I felt I lacked the experience or the training to fill that role. My mom and my grandmothers were absolutely the nucleus of each family, and with them gone, we had all begun to scatter. I wished to pick up that torch again and felt learning to make the vina tarta to share with the family at Christmas would be a good start. Thankfully, my aforementioned cousin had the family recipe and sent it, but I'd never made it before. I had no idea what to expect. So with nothing but two cell phone photos of handwritten recipe cards texted to me and a memory of the end product, I started my odyssey. The first obstacle was in making the jam. Like a technical bake challenge from the great Canadian baking show, the recipe simply called for copious amounts of prunes, sugar, water, and a little bit of cinnamon and cardamom combined and simmered until water absorbed. And I had never made jam, but fortunately it's a forgiving process. Checking it every half hour, I eventually had prunes that resembled my fingers after a bath in a heavenly smelling syrup. The shortbread presented another puzzle because my memory of vina tarta was of soft, tender layers of cake, not the crisp biddle briskets that I was turning out and there was this moment of panic that I was doing something terribly wrong, but I decided to trust the process. As I got to the assembly portion of the recipe, I was reminded that the assembled cakes were supposed to be wrapped in plastic foil and allowed to sit in the fridge for three days. This allows the shortbread to absorb moisture from the jam and soften. Realizing this with renewed confidence, I was back on track. Now, vina tarta has a reputation for being a time-intensive process, and I had a lot of people question my resolve when I started. The common refrain was, oh, this is a lot of work. Are you sure you're up for it? However, I learned that while it was a lengthy process, it is not an effort intensive one. The jam requires little supervision, neither does letting them sit in the fridge. The dough isn't particularly complicated and the rounds bake in about seven minutes. My trick was to reduce the tort size, allowing me to cook four at a time on a baking sheet while I set up the next four. It created a frantic pace, but it let me pump out four cakes every half hour. Um, with a helper rolling out, probably double that. When my first cake was ready, I was nervous. Uh, would I be doing my heritage justice or did I just create an inedible monstrosity? 
I cut a thin piece in the traditional way and I took a bite. I was braced for disaster, but it was exactly as I remembered it. And I nearly cried right there in the kitchen. In those flavors, I found a moment of connection uh, back to my family and my mom. It was pure holiday magic and it's become an anchor point for my own Christmas traditions. I make as many of them as I can to give out to the people I love and I share the recipe widely. As a trans woman, I have a distaste for gatekeeping cultural knowledge by gender. I believe that all children should be offered opportunities to learn everything we can teach them. This year, we couldn't do family gatherings, but by being able to mail these vina tarta out, when we gathered online, we could do so in ways that felt more meaningful through the shared enjoyment of a little cake. It's a small step towards bringing my goal of uh, my goal of bringing my family, chosen and blood, closer to me. Ah. Uh. First tears. <laughs> Thank you, Adrian. That was so beautiful. The first time I heard you tell that story, I also cried. And I was like, I'm prepared. I've heard this story before. It's not going to make me cry again. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. Um, I have a, a little uh, gender exploratory boy of my own. Uh, and I after I messed up with my eldest child and made them afraid of peanuts and all of the allergens in the world. Um, and that's the story of how he, he stopped eating my eldest. Um, I decided not to do that to my youngest and my youngest and I cook on a regular basis. And his favorite thing to make right now is deviled eggs. Like he adores the peeling of the egg and like the deciding what to put in the egg with the mayonnaise. And like the other day he's like, my partner suggested we put in pumpkin spice because my partner, though they like nothing, uh, enjoy pumpkin spice. Uh, so we put pumpkin spice in and we put a little maple syrup drizzle over top. And I have never had a better dessert deviled egg. And I love that I have a child who will try all of the strange things with us. Um, and I do have to admit that my eldest child, he is willing now I apologized to him over and over again for making him afraid of nuts, but he had a fairy godparent who was allergic to nuts and I was terrified of him like pawing at her <laughs> and accidentally killing her, right? And I didn't know that I should have trusted my friend who was an adult and she's been around nuts before and she could probably like hold off a peanut buttered handed person. So uh, every little thing that you do with your kids is impactful, but um, my eldest has, the, since he's just like, you know what? I probably would have been afraid of things anyway. I would have found my own fears. So thank you for <laughs> deciding my fears for me. And he he does try new foods these days. So I just think it's great to like teach our children to love the kitchen because it's such an important part. And uh, yeah, my mom had to be there. So she wasn't a big fan of it, but I got to choose it. And my dad was the one who taught me to cook. So I feel like gender, whatever. <laughs> And as a gender whatever person, that's how I feel. <laughs> Thank you so much, Adrian, for that beautiful story. And I look forward to listening to it again um, on the podcast. Um, coming up next, as a friend I met in a kitchen, uh, I used to have a play date with this other wonderful person uh, who had twins. And we were the only two non-binary parents I knew at the time. So we used to hang out. And in that dining room, <laughs> there was a woman sitting at the table writing. And as I got to know her, I realized she was very thoughtful and like wonderfully 
deep. And I uh, got to see her perform at other events. And uh, my friend Casey held this incredible uh, event about grief and mourning. And this next teller told this beautiful story, which also had me in tears. She is in her life a grief group facilitator and a writer and a person who just thinks with her heart. If you could welcome to our wonderful little space, Heather Paul. Thank you. Um, that cued me up so well because I'm also talking about uh, food and family um, and um, struggles with food and family uh, and um, the way the way food and family lives in and on our bodies in powerful ways. So this is called bearing the weight of my history. My body looks like Russia. It is immense. It spans a hearty portion of the Eastern hemisphere. There is very little room for neighboring startup republics in its borders. And when I was younger, I feared I was doomed to live like a frozen wasteland forever. Everything about me kept getting bigger. In fourth grade, my breasts resembled onion domes. By sixth grade, they were the size of St. Petersburg. These days, I think they may be out to take over the world and you could hide nuclear missiles in there, but I don't recommend it because you may not be able to find them again. On the map of my body, stretch marks climb over my hips like rivers trying to reach both the Pacific and the Atlantic oceans. The space between my legs, though not as barren as I feared it would be, seems to get lost between the snow-crested mountains of my thighs. I inherited this Russian body from my foremothers. They handed it down with their amazing recipes for matzo ball soup and knish. I can still see my weight conscious family members frowning around the table, examining my expanding waistline as they examined their own, while my great grandmother, who sat on the other side of the table, encouraged me to take yet another helping. What, you should want to deny your heritage? This recipe was my grandmother's. Eat and joy, we're exhausting people. That's how we survived hard winters in Russia. And now, ha, we use food as a way to survive everything. We kvetch about how big we are and then we eat more because we're upset. New, it's in our blood. What can we do? But thank God we have hearty appetites and big hearts to match. I tried to listen to my great grandmother's words, but it's awkward to be the largest country. I don't mean to take up most of the space in Europe, but at least I'm nice about it. I only occupy the spaces no one else wants. The cold, lonely places where the nights are white and the darkness envelops the day. I'm clumsy about government too. My immensity gets in the way and I seem to trip over everything. You'd think I would do something about this and I've tried. I stopped eating for a while in hopes that I could slim down to the size of Italy or maybe even Chile. It worked at first, but my heritage stuck out in strange places. 
My waist and hips lost their gargantuan dimensions, and my face took on that sexy, angular look, complete with the hollow eyes and sunken cheeks that most people associate with otherworldly starvation. My breasts, however, never shrink down to normal size. Russia evacuated my body and the entire population took refuge in my chest. Like literally all of them. They threatened to secede and become countries of their own. Eventually, I grew tired of trying to be the size of Switzerland. I could squeeze into smaller spaces and at last I was pleased with the country staring back at me in the mirror. But the truth is I never really fit into that shrunken frame. I was sick all the time, dizzy from my efforts to battle off sinister invaders like bread, cheese, potatoes, and even carrots, those dangerously carb-laden vegetables. I'd wanted to train for a marathon, but my body couldn't seem to handle it. When I started to pass out after running too many miles without enough fuel, I realized I couldn't avoid my Russian heritage any longer. I gently allowed my body the time it needed to grow again, there were moments when it was kind of fun. I enjoyed all of the food I denied myself for so long, though I consumed a lot of Jewish guilt with every single bite. But after a while, as my body, as my body regained its Russian proportions, I began to wish there was anything I could do to abandon my genes or squeeze in the smaller ones. My great-grandmother's age finally crept up on her in the fall of my freshman year of college. She died at the age of 98, and I wrote poetry for her all morning, this woman who represented my past. She was one of my few family members who could tell me about Russia as she remembered it. A legacy far bigger than my body snuggled between the bodies of my foremothers and the daughters of our future. These days, sometimes I still kvetch about my size. Having a Russian body means that shopping is devastating. My breasts hurt whenever the car goes over speed bumps. And every time I eat, I know I'm feeding the Russian peasants who still live in my thighs. Some days I look in the mirror and bemoan my figure, even though it is part of my past. But other days, when I look at the curves of my breasts and hips, I can hear my ancestors laugh with full-figured good nature as they sit together over elaborate, delicious meals, passing the kugel and the stories across the table. This is where we enjoy old recipes cooked up and often exaggerated for flavor. This is where my own experiences collide with my history. And this is where my future will be, served up with a sizable portion of memories and shared with my Zoftig loving Russian family. Thank you so much, Heather. Oh, I yearn to live in a world where all the bodies just get to be all the bodies and eat all the things. That is the world that I live in. Like I now have the, the body of my father, which is like very pear shaped and very lovely and like got a lot of bum and I love it. And I like when I look at my dad, I go, yeah, we ate really well. And then he'll call me and be like, have you got gout yet? <laughs> I'm like, no, dad, I have not got the gout yet is it coming and he's like it got me at 39 you're already 42 when is the gout coming because apparently you get gout from eating really rich foods and we're um, part indigenous and like that was not part of our like our upbringing and stuff but uh I'm not forsaking like delicious fat things <laughs> I'm not <laughs> I refuse um and my dad taught me to live 
big and 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 enjoy the things that you enjoy because life is short it's so short Thank you so much, Heather. That was so beautifully told. I appreciate you and I appreciate your existence and the existence of your food-loving ancestors. Uh, coming up next, we have a person who uh, the bandwidth in the rural areas may allow to be on screen or not on screen, but if you're in a podcast world right now listening to this in the future, you'll be able to hear her voice just fine. She is a poet and a comedian and a clown. She's a force of nature. And if you're looking for a place to live perhaps right now and you wanna to move to the country and throw big shows and live in a commune with lots of delicious food because she makes a very good delicious chicken. Oh, I'm probably still spoiling your story right now. <laughs> I just realized she makes a really good chicken drumstick. It's so good, y'all. Um, if you like potlucks, you're gonna love this next storyteller. Her name is B exclamation mark, Wilder. Thanks, everybody. Um, you muted me. That's funny. Um, if I start to break up, just like give me a, ah, like let me know and I'll turn my video off so that you can keep hearing what I'm saying. As Danielle explained, I'm very rural and my internet is actually knock on wood, better than it's been in a long time. Um, this will not surprise Danielle. I had a story planned. I'm not telling that story. Um, so, uh, cause I was kind of inspired uh, by the stories other people were telling. And my story is more of a story about food and politics. And uh, I got really inspired by the stories about the enjoyment of food. And so this kind of, uh, thought of uh, that came to me. So I'm just gonna go off my heart. So hopefully I don't meander and lose you all, but rather take you somewhere that it was worth going. But um, the thing that got me was the idea that, that food is about relationship and people, but to me, it's also about place and time. And I, I have certain foods that are associated with certain places and times, and I do not enjoy that food from any other place and time because it doesn't live up to those memories of food. So food is also strongly attached to our memories of place and time and family. And so the first food I remember um, is that my dad makes these things that we call German pancakes. What they really are is crepes, um, but my family lived on the German side of the Alsace-Lorraine is Germany debate as opposed to the Alsace-Lorraine is whatever it is in between the both of them. But so we had this crepe recipe and I learned to make those eventually. And it's a really particular process. It's not a crepe pan, it's a cast iron skillet and it's very heavy. And so it takes a lot of muscle power. And at one point I had a family with four kids. So it would take me close to two hours to make enough of these crepes with two cast iron pans going. But I can't have a crepe. Uh, without thinking of my father. And that that was one of the few foods that he cooked when I was growing up because food was very gender divided for me. So the story I wanna tell though um, is about when I moved in grade nine. So I grew up in a very small town, uh, best chocolate glazed donuts ever, can't eat them from anywhere else because I live there, just saying. Um, but that's not what I wanna talk about. I, I went to a lot of restaurants growing up, my parents, uh, were 
uh, you know, kind of middle, middle class. And we celebrated occasions by going as families to a restaurant. And that's where I learned to, to love food and uh, discover not very ethnically diverse food, but more elevated food, um, fancy meals like, uh, and, and the, the white linen tablecloths and the real silver on the table and those sorts of things. So I grew up in a very historic place, um, kind of like Eastern Canada with, you know, the colonial buildings and that not. And there was a place that we used to go to semi-regularly called the Grove Inn, which I don't know, built in the 17, late 1700s or early 1800s, had been an inn for a long time. Um, maybe I should mention I grew up in Cooperstown, New York originally, which is where James Fenimore Cooper wrote the series, The Last of the Mohicans. And so it was actually a very heavily indigenous area that was heavily colonized. So at the time I had no idea of all of these colonial things that I loved and what the nature of them was, but I just adored that place because it was the old, an old inn. So the, the, the old wood and the whitewashed walls and the heavy wooden furniture. And there was just something about that that resonated with me. But it might have been the muffins that actually resonated with me. So these muffins were like nothing that I ever got anywhere else. And, you know, when you have that food that is the, so good and it, it melts in your mouth and all the sensors go off and you're like washed with that euphoria of, oh, my God, what, what are all of these tastes and smells and this joy that just putting this in my mouth brings to me. So these muffins were like that. They were baked in mini tins and they really weren't muffins at all. But I didn't think about this when I was a kid. Uh, I just enjoyed eating as many as my parents would let me get away with putting as much butter on as I could because what is a better food than a vehicle for butter. Um, so, I, and I used to eat them. So in grade nine, we leave my small town and I decide that in this giant suburban school that I'm now in, i.e. I went from a school that had a total of 570 people to a grade level that had 570 people in my class. Um, I decided instead of doing the vocabulary prep and the math prep courses for the SATs, um, I would, I needed to take a cooking class. Like I was, I had loved food enough and there was a cooking class. And so I did this weird thing, adjusted my schedule totally out of sync with what I was supposed to do as a good university prep person. And so when the lesson came uh, where we could bring our favorite muffin recipe, I brought this muffin recipe to class, right? Because these were the best, when I think muffins, the only other muffin at that time that would come to mind would be my mom's Christmas muffins, which never settled well because we had to eat them before we could open the Christmas presents. So I was never hungry. So I bring this recipe to class and as I'm making comes over and she's looking at it and she reads my recipe and she's like, oh, these aren't muffins. Like th there's not enough flour and there's no, you know, there's not leavening, like they're not the proper muffins that raise up. And, and I saved this part for now to explain, because otherwise it kind of gives away the story. I mean, I didn't fail or anything because they're absolutely delicious. These muffins are essentially, without the oats, if you took the crumble from the top of an apple pie or a crisp and turned it into a muffin, 
that's what they were like. They were crispy and caramelized sugar around teeny little bits of apple. And they're just like hot out of, like they're no good cold, absolutely no good cold. Like you can't bake them and take them somewhere. You have to eat them hot because they just start to harden too much. But so that's just a, a story about one of my favorite foods that I tried to fit in the box and follow the rules, but my food didn't quite fit in the box. So. I forgot to look at time. I don't know where I'm at. You were amazing. I think that's a perfect, perfect ending. And also it looks like people in the chat need the recipe, which I was afraid would happen in this show because everything sounds delicious. So if you at some point would like to go to the chat and and describe whether or not in like a, a Winnipeg recipe style where it's just like throw some things together, <laughs> right? Um, where it's I, like, you, we, I can we actually love that. On this, the the Facebook page. Fantastic. Perfect. Oh, yes. We have, if you're a podcast listener, a Facebook page, a group you can join for the Iridescent Robot Storytelling Club. Thank you for that segue. And apparently we're going to have recipes there. So that's just a, another reason to join that group. There's almost 200 people in that group right now. And I have no idea how everyone found this teeny tiny club, but I'm happy you are here. <laughs> so we have two more storytellers and then we're going to get to our featured guest for the evening and then you will be allowed to go out into the evening i will eat something because i have not eaten yet because i knew that i would feast upon the imagining of food and if i had a full belly i would be like oh <laughs> but right now i'm just like my mouth is watering and i want everything so i think i'm at the perfect point in the night for this next storyteller <laughs> who's telling a story I've heard before and it's funny and it's good but it may interrupt your appetite temporarily <laughs> coming to the the wonderful tree house that is our space uh is my friend Michael Lockhart who I met at the moth when I was producer there he uh came to the door he wanted in the show was absolutely sold out and I said probably not but he said I have a story to tell and that that's my kryptonite I have a story to tell I'm going to find a way for you to tell it whether it be on the street outside of the moth <laughs> after the show or not uh, and I sent him to the Cuban sandwich shop just around the corner and thankfully someone gifted their ticket and said is there someone who really needs this ticket and I ran even though there were 300 people waiting for me to start the show I ran to the Cuban sandwich shop I saw Michael Lockhart and I said you better have a good story <laughs> and he did and he won that night with this story so that began our friendship and we have been telling stories and listening to each other's stories ever since so if you could welcome to, with your hearts and your hands and your ears the wonderful Michael Lockhart well, you are so awesome, Danielle. I, you, you made my life actually. I have to tell you, with that, with that, with that moment, right? So it's kind of cool, but it's uncanny. It's uncanny that B, you changed your story, and Danielle knows exactly what I'm talking about. You're. This is so weird that we switched order and you changed your story, but you're going to get it now. Now you're you're going to understand it by the end of this. All right. So in. Uh, in 1989, I totaled my car in a 100-car pileup on I-5 during March um, outside of Seattle. And 
that's a bad thing, but I knew I was going to get this uh, awesome winnings, winnings from the insurance company. And I said, this time, this time I'm going to buy the most non Mike Lockhart car I can. It is going to be a real manly car. It's going to be something that makes me a different person every time I'm in it. I didn't quite get a lot of money, but with that money in 1989, I bought a brand new 1989 Pontiac Firebird. Now, wait. Now, I know it's a classic now, back then, mm, a subject of scorn, but uh, it was red, it had T-tops, it played a CD, but I could only afford the six-cylinder, and it did have cloth seats, and the little decals of the Firebird were kind of tiny ones, but, you know, instead of the big one, that, that's what I got. But I loved that car. I mean, I really loved that car. When I got in that car, I was like, I could become a different person. It's kind of weird. And I could listen to Madonna and dance in the car and do all this stuff. So about a few months later after that winter, it was fall uh, out here in Seattle. And sometimes in October, we get these perfect days. It was a perfect Seattle day, 65 degrees. The universe was shining for sure. And I had to get up for work. And I looked outside and I said, oh yeah, 65 degrees, October. This, this is the day for the Pontiac Firebird. So I put on this cool suit. And it had, I had this really nicely pressed new suit, a little light blue thing with a pinstripe in it. And I had a tie, kind of looked like Jackson Pollock and spray painted paint all over it. I loved that tie. I had cool classic Rayburn glasses, Ray, 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 Rayburn glasses. And I thought, oh yeah, this is, this is the day that I'm the man in the car. So I, I get in car, take the T-tops off, and I am listening to Madonna. I know exactly what happened this day. I was listening to Madonna Holiday. I know it. That is, that is my, yep, yep. And so I've got my left hand here, and I'm driving down with that one-handed thing with the T-tops, enjoying this beautiful day out here in Seattle and driving south of Seattle. And um, as I got south of Seattle, I realized, hey, I need to get some gas. So I pulled into the a Chevron Mini Mart right there, and I got out of the car and I pumped gas. And remember, it's 1989, so pay at the pump really isn't all that all over the place. So I, I pump my gas and I I walk into the I walk into the um, the mini mart there. Wait, 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 no, I didn't walk. I sauntered into that mini mart in my suit. Oh, really? I, I, I looked good, you guys. I I didn't look like a pandemic old man stuck in his house. I looked good, and I went in there and I was paying for my gas. And if the universe couldn't be any more perfect that day, there next to the guy at the Chevron Mini Mart was a basket of muffins. And the muffins, I know. And on the top of that stack was my favorite muffin. I mean, to this day, it is my favorite muffin. It is a blueberry cream-filled muffin. So I kind of was paying for my gas and I got the muffin and I'm paying for the gas and I, I walk back out to my car. Wait, wait, no, I don't walk back out to my car. I saunter back out to my car with the muffin, right? And I get in the car and I've got the left-handed thing going. I've got the muffin in my hand and I'm pulling, as I start pulling out of the gas station, I, I look down and I, I notice, I notice, oh, oh, look at this. Some of the, some of the cream filling is on my pants from the muffin. And I thought, oh my goodness. So, so, so I, I kind of wasn't stopping and I, I kind of put the muffin down and I, and I looked around for a napkin and I didn't have a napkin. So I took these two fingers right here and I 
and I went down the pants and I, I as I was driving out, I kind of scooped up all that cream filling off of my pants. I mean, I got it all off my pants, all of it. And it was, it was like the universe was shining on me. I, didn't, I wouldn't have to, brand new suit, I, it had just been dry cleaned. I wouldn't even have to bring it in for dry cleaning. So I'm, <laughs> I'm pulling out and I looked around and I, I didn't have a napkin or anything. So I took that blueberry cream filling and I put it in my mouth. I mean, I put it all in my mouth. <laughs> and it's kind of like that when you're in that kind of cool mode where the universe kind of flips you a red flag. And I went, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Something's wrong. And I kind of stopped the car in the parking lot. I opened the door and I'm, I'm spitting it out, spitting it out, spitting it out. Because it wasn't the cream filling from the muffin. It was bird shit. <laughs> yeah. That's it. <laughs> it's just a really small story. It is. It's such a small story, but it like every time it just gets me right here. Because you're like, that dude, that dude who thinks he's so cool, mm-hmm. <laughs> who is really just a Madonna fan in his heart, who also really loves like Beverly Hills 90210. Oh, that's another story. Oh, oh I know. Yes. I know. I am love <laughs> Beverly Hills 90210. That it was just like a sign from the heavens. Yep. That maybe yep, yep, you yep. should just be yep. yourself. I'm not, not as dumb as I look, though. I'm not as <laughs> no, dumb as I look. To, that stuff on my, it had little dark spots in it, so it looked <laughs> like there were blueberries in there, right? It looked yes. like blueberries from, from. Well, I love how you're still justifying you eating the I justify <laughs> it because it was, I was easily fooled at that moment by that. Yeah. So. It is with that story that he became one of the, one of the best moth storytellers in Seattle. So, and he <laughs> went on to do grand slams and, and, and more storytelling. And I am grateful for that bird oh. and it, what it did to you, because well, now you have that story. Really thanks to you. <laughs> and a friend of mine who said, go check this thing out. Yeah. Thanks, Danielle. That's great. I love you, Michael Lockhart. <laughs> I love you too. So uh, a good laugh is it's a good for your heart. Good food is good for all of you. Um, and this next storyteller, uh, I'm going to give her a second to wipe the tears of laughter out of her eyes. Uh, she came to a show in Seattle and we met there a long time ago, Fresh Ground Stories. If you've ever not checked it out, you can, because it's virtual now. It's the third Thursday of the month and it's beautiful. And Paul Currington is a gentle soul. And if you want to tell stories, come here, go there. We've got you covered. (laughs) I met her there. I saw her tell a story. And uh, later, this is like almost four years later, we remet because of this show. And I am so grateful. And I get to talk to her on a regular basis now, and we're friends. And that is what a pandemic can do. <laughs> if you lean into it and you kind of like go out of your comfort zone and, and talk to strangers on the internet. She has a wonderful online magazine called called audio listening mag and you should go check it out where she animates true stories and she's got a great group of people around her her friend Irma is here tonight and I just want to give a shout out to Irma for coming even though you do not feel well and you're not on camera and I appreciate you because you don't have to be on camera at the iridescent robot you could be under your blankets listening to us like we're already a podcast so I love the story that you're about to tell, and I'm going to try not to ruin it. So if you could just welcome with your hearts and your hands and your ears, the wonderful Renee Marshall.
I started college classes at age 16 at a local junior college. Unlike a cafeteria or local shops to walk to for lunch, like in high school, there was only one food truck. It was gray, it had a waffle balloon on one side, it had a blue awning, no menu. Food trucks weren't a thing back then, and students on campus called it the Roach Coach. There was a small rectangular slide window that didn't let you see much of the people inside. I already had more than one campus teacher say scary things to me. I dropped an English class because one referred to me as jailbait. Unlike that teacher, I found a home in anthropology class where Professor Toby Coles and cultural geography lecturer Dick Solomon welcomed my questions in class, didn't make fun of me, and no danger was drawn towards me in their presence. So I followed them around like a baby duck during mealtimes. <laughs> like Dick Solomon, I bought a BLT sandwich. That's a bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwich. And $3.75 seemed like a lot to spend on a sandwich at the time, but it was toasted white bread with a slather of mayo, some barbecue sauce, and three strips of bacon with just enough lettuce to cut the crack and the crunch of the bacon. Did I break a tooth? No, that was just a bacon bit. When I received my change, I could finally see who was inside, dark-skinned Asians. I began to wonder, were the Roach Coach comments anti-Asian? I was in Livermore, where people wore cowboy hats and didn't take kindly to foreigners. On the food truck said San Leandro, California. <sighs> to, people in to people in Livermore, San Leandro was the bad lands. But I knew. San Leandro to be a place where immigrants could find ingredients they couldn't find anywhere else. One day, Professor Toby Coles dropped his leather bag in front of the class. And he said, I was getting my dinner from the food truck. And do you know what a colleague said to me? You know, if you eat that sandwich, you could be eating dog. My classmates laughed and they sat back and I froze. Toby Coles continued. So I said, if it's dog, I'm going to enjoy eating it. Some people are so ignorant. And this class, this class, is to reduce some of that. Cultural anthropology has some of the, has the worst origin story of how we divide each other by race 
and racial prejudice. <sighs> Toby Coles checked our assumptions weekly with stories from his own life and the story of his son. For example, when his son went to pick up a Father's Day gift at the mall and he was followed the entire time by mall security. By the time Toby Coles talked about his family's emancipation papers, many of the people who laughed before hung their head. I began bringing blueberry breakfast bars with me in order to save a little bit of money. But when I went to the food truck, I held my head up high and I didn't have Toby Cole's big boisterous way, but I did my part to make the people at the food truck feel welcome. They're probably wondering why this Chinese girl in Livermore was making small talk when all they're trying to do is get her order of BLT out. <laughs> then Lunar New Year rolled around and I said, Sunny Philok, Gung Hei Fa Tsui. And the lady pushed herself through the window partway and said, hey you, come here, take this. She gave me a lucky red envelope. It turns out she was Vietnamese and she celebrated Lunar New Year just like me. I love you. <laughs> I, love I you also pre-watched the story three times. So I wouldn't cry at the show and I can't. <sighs> you are such a phenomenal storyteller and I love your stories and I love the way you bring people together and you draw attention to things with your heart. Thank you so much for that story. And I now I want to be LT. <laughs> like I just am like, oh, and I threw away the bread because bread goes bad really quickly. I don't know in my house. Like it says it's good forever, but it just does not last. <sighs> Renee, thank you so much. You should really go check out audio listening, Meg. Um, and if you have a story to tell, you should let Renee know. She's an incredible human being and just a lovely, thoughtful. Ugh. Anyway, someday we'll see each other again in person and we'll be able to hug. And that is what I want for all of us. <laughs> Coming up. I'm going to take a deep breath. Anybody else want to take a deep breath? <laughs> okay. Uh, podcast listeners, you can go to the bathroom, pause, whatever you want. But we are, we're here and we have one more wonderful guest left in our evening. And I'm very excited to get to her, but I'm going to take a deep breath. Because our next guest is the wonderful Suzanne Evans. And I feel grateful to have been able to work with her over the last three, four months. Uh, I read the book that she wrote, The Taste of Longing, and it required me to get into a life of someone who was really, I felt like we could have been the same kind of person. Uh, Ethel Mulvaney is a spirited human being who cares so deeply and who has some of the same mental health concerns that I have and uh, a willingness to to put herself out there in a way that is just it's inspiring um, but her existence came into contact with World War II and she was in the wrong place at the wrong time and somehow 
she managed to survive that. And our guest spent 10 years of her own life researching Ethel Mulvaney and her life and wrote this incredible book. I'm going to hold it up for you. It's called The Taste of Longing. Ethel Mulvaney and her Starving Prisoners of War cookbook. And I highly recommend it. My dad says it's not just for ladies, <laughs> which dad, <laughs> my dad has read it twice now and it's beautifully written. And uh, I just, I highly recommend it. Not because I'm a Suzanne's publicist, but because I truly, truly believe that this book is um, a Canadian treasure. And it had the unfortunate um, it was published during a pandemic in September in 2020, and it has, did not get the attention that it deserved. And though we went and did, I think, nine or 10 imaginary feasts, um, we had plans to do a festival together. We had plans to raise money for food banks. And uh, it's, it's, it's hard these days. Um, but if there's one thing you can do is you can go out and grab yourself a copy and read it and tell a friend, because in the end, books that we love, you wanna pass them on. And this is something I would love to pass on. So um, Suzanne is here to read a bit from the prologue, which is one of my favorite parts because you can really hear Suzanne's voice in it, harnessing Anna Ethel's story. And uh, she, we're also gonna have a little candid conversation after about Suzanne's feelings about food, which she often only gets to talk about Ethel and I like talking about her too, cause she's a special person. So if you could welcome with your hearts in her hands, the wonderful, Suzanne Evans. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is great. And I have really enjoyed all of these stories. You know, there's, there's so much family and memories and pain and pleasure and laughter. And it's all around food. And I had no idea that when I was coming to this topic that it would be so big, as we will maybe talk about afterwards. Food was not such a big thing for me, and not just because I'm really small. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, okay, I will begin by reading a little bit from the prologue of The Taste of Longing, just to uh, set the scene for this story about Ethel. Um, I came across the, her cookbook when I was working at the War Museum in, uh, in Ottawa, um, and just finding that cookbook compelled me to spend 10 years and travel around the world doing research to, to write this story. So I'll just start in. Ethel pulled on the lumpy blue coat she'd been given by the Red Cross and glanced in the mirror before heading out to the printers. There was nothing she could do about the coat's ugliness, but the garment was hers and not much else in the world was. Just over a year before, on an unforgettable September day in 1945, at the end of the war, she had been carried out of a Singapore prison camp on a stretcher. This five foot seven inch woman had been unable to tip the scales past 85 pounds then, but now she was on her way back to her old size, if not her old self. When she arrived at the shop on Toronto's Danforth Avenue, she walked in with as much business in her manner as she could muster, put the two ledger books on the counter and got on with her mission. You see these recipes, 
She pointed out the ones with the check marks beside them. I want you to print them up in a book. Fit as many in on a page as you can. The printer started flipping through the log books while she kept on talking. I picked the best ones, but really they're all wonderful. Oh, how they made our mouths water when we discussed them. You see, I was living in a prison camp in Singapore with a lot of other women when we wrote these and we were all starving. He looked up in astonishment. Really? Yes, we ate biam soup every day for three and a half years. Not much more than cooked up buffalo grass. How would you like that? Not much, he shook his head. So all these women named in here, did they live in the camp? They did, and some of them died there too. She leaned in closer. They died in the camp hospital from every disease known to man. This is to remember the ones who, who died and to help those who just made it through. The shop owner, wide-eyed, took refuge in the mundanity of his trade. Do you want to include the women's names beside the recipes? Ethel turned the books around and had another look. No, there's too many of them gone already. It'd be like calling back the dead. She handed over her one-page introduction and the sketch of Changi Jail that she had for the front cover. She might have guessed, though, from the way the printer kept turning the drawing around, that he wouldn't print it the right way up, but she didn't say anything. She needed to win his support and wasn't so sure of her persuasive abilities anymore. Even though the boils and the scars from her jungle sores had faded, she felt them just as she felt the loss of her youth and charm that had so often helped her win backers for her grand schemes. She still had her smile though, so she put it on duty. I want you to make me 2000 copies. She slapped a dollar bill on the, on the counter. Here's a down payment and I'll give you my word for the rest. And as a Rogers from Manitoulin Island, my word is as good as gold. He leaned back, lady, this is an interesting story and I can see you've been through the ringer, but a dollar for 2000 copies? I'll have the money to you before the year's done. I know just who I'm going to approach to sell these books and we all know that everybody loves a cookbook. The money's not for me, even though I'm skint just at the moment. I'm gonna buy food and send it to XPOWs recuperating in hospital over in England. These are the men who survived the horrors I told you about. Lady, she held up her hand. I'm asking a lot and you don't know me from Adam, but I raised plenty of money for good causes before the war and this is a good cause and you'd know it too if you'd ever been hungry or known anyone who suffered starvation. I'm asking for 2000 copies because I, all right, all right, he interrupted, but I won't make it longer than a hundred pages and you'll have to cut out a lot of these recipes. It'll be low grade paper too with no fancy cover and that money needs to be paid up within the month. Two months, she held her breath. He shook his head and reluctantly pulled out his order pad. Do you want me to put your name on the cover? She breathed out and thought for a moment. Just my initials, E-R-M. And the title, Prisoners of War Cookbook? Oh, it needs more than that. I'll call it Prisoners of War Cookbook. This is a collection of recipes made by starving prisoners of war. Fine. No, 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 I'm not done. Starving prisoners of war while they were interned in Changi Jail, Singapore, compiled by ERM. Well, he nodded his head. It's a mouthful, all right. 
And that's the prologue. <laughs> oh, it's such a good start to the story and her life too, because you can really feel she'll do anything. <laughs> to and, and you watch her throughout the entire book do anything to help, right? To, to just make anybody's life just a little bit better. And I, I feel that pull and that drive. And I did have to stop it a lot like while I was reading because it is so well written that you're there with her and in a lot of literary biographies you can kind of like separate yourself from the subject you're like this is the history this is the past but with your book I really felt in it like within her space and and going through the same thing she was going through and your writing of it was just so wonderful how how did you get into that sort of space of like I know that you spent 10 years researching it but how did you find a way to write her story in a way that didn't belittle her you know with her like mental health concerns and and all of the the issues that she went through like you didn't treat her as less than human and it was so beautiful to watch her story through your 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 abilities thank you it was a struggle I have to say it it was a struggle this is not the first version that I wrote in fact, I just loved Ethel's voice so much that the first um, version of this book that I wrote, I, I quoted her in copious quantities. I had great long quotes because I had a wonderful resource. I was given by her niece an old recording. The niece didn't know what it was, but it was actually 15 hours of taped interviews with this uh, journalist uh, working for Maclean's magazine here in Canada. Um, and he had interviewed her in 1961 for an article and they were going to write a book together, but I don't know what happened. Maybe it was just not the time for it. Anyway, um, I just loved her voice. She was, she was the Catherine Hepburn voice of Changi Jail. She was that forceful, fast talking woman. The problem was that I expect she, she might've been having a bit of a, a manic moment during those interviews because her, her conversation just went off on huge long tangents. Um, and he, um, the journalist had to rein her in. And then for me, those many years later, I had to rein in those quotes to make sense of them. But then I finally realized that I can't just put her on the page. I have to give this context. So that was my struggle is just doing, presenting kind of my, my view of her, not just giving her upfront, but my view of her. And, and sharing my delight in some of her comments. Yeah, it's so evident that you grew to love her, you know, that like, and reading it, and and I, I do feel lucky that you shared a little bit of her interviews with me so I could hear her voice. So when I read the quotes, I hear Ethel's voice and she does have a Catherine Hepburn about her, but she's like from Manitoulin Island, but she has that sort of <laughs> verve. Um, so, when you, because we were talking about this uh, earlier last week, 
I, I asked, you know, like, what was it about the food part? Because you decided to sort of like focus in on the imaginary feasts. What was the food? You must love food. And you said to me, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized we were coming at this book from completely different angles. Like I loved that she loved food and that everyone in the book who was really into food was really into food. But you uh, found it perverse that these the people had found a way to survive through food. And that I thought was really fascinating that you chose to, to go into something that wasn't your passion in that way. I do, I do love food now. Yes. Mm -hmm. it, it's something that uh, it took me time to get there. Um, but, you know, when I, I read about this book, first of all, I thought, why why would you sit around talking about food and recipes when you can't have any of this food wouldn't that be just so frustrating um and i i was i couldn't have been more off the mark because there were there are a lot of these uh prisoners of war stories um and and people from concentration camps uh who wrote about food who talked about food who had who had baking competitions in their conversations. Um, so, you know, maybe I would have been there. Had I been that hungry, maybe I would have been there too. However, I do know that there are some prisoners who did not want to do this. They did mm -hmm. not talk about the food. Maybe I would have been part of their conversations. I'm, I'm not sure, but... Um, I, I grew up being forced to eat because I was so little. My, my father um, insisted on me eating. And so that did not develop a hunger in me for food. It was just how little can I eat in order to get out of this situation? How much can I put in my napkin and feed to the dog under the table? Um, so anyway, <laughs> yes. It's been a, a voyage for me. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting too, because my mother came to one of our imaginary feasts and, and Suzanne and I held these feasts. It was six or seven people talking about a meaningful meal. Um, and we did it during the pandemic. And those imaginary feasts helped me get through the pandemic. So it was kind of like an extra that she was there you know, that Ethel was there saying, you know, you can get through this. Look what I got through, <laughs> right? Because there are parts of the book where she's like, look, I had carbuncles, I had boils, I, horrible things happened to me and buy this cookbook because I'm going to send and make these people's lives better. Um, and so like, anytime I would feel kind of sorry for myself, isolated, I would remember that I still have access to takeout food <laughs> and, and that I could cook with my family and that I was not a starving prisoner of war and I feel like reading this book during the pandemic was kind of the perfect reminder that things could be a whole lot worse um, and that her ability to to find ways around it around the the hard parts right the 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 flights of imagination that she would go into like when she was in solitary confinement and she named all of her bugs and 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 those things like that really spoke to me that that our ability to imagine ourselves outside of something horrible is a kind of a human thing i think we have done a remarkable job actually during the pandemic 
Um, you know, where, whereas those prisoners were missing food mainly, the other part of a feast, of course, is the people. And, and you know, I have to say, thank God for Zoom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know. Not, not enough. And I would just love to be in the same room with everybody. And I have a million questions for these storytellers. But, um, but we have found these creative go-rounds. Um, so it's, it is, there's uh, a similarity in our situations. Yeah, yes, I am definitely starving for company. I agree. I do. I feel lucky um, during the pandemic that I have been able to bring my spouse um, and that we got married uh, in September and I flew really quickly to Las Vegas and we did a drive up wedding and then I brought them back and we are doing immigration papers right now so that they can stay. Did you know that you have to convince the Canadian government that you're in love? <laughs> to- to keep your partner here. It is a ridiculous process. Uh, my partner is currently downstairs uh, looking through notes and I feel very Suzanne right now, like that we are like going through our history. <laughs> and I just, I, I feel lucky to have weathered the pandemic with you, Suzanne, and to have made new friends like Stephen uh, and Renee and to have reconnected with people that I miss from Seattle and from Winnipeg and, uh, it's just been so lovely um, to be here. Is there any last parting words that you would like to, to give to the, the crew, the participants, the people in this, this tiny tree house full of stories um, about what you're doing next? Oh, well, uh, your stories are important to me because I am gathering them. And I'm actually gonna be um, presenting at a conference in Oxford virtually, um, comparing our modern day stories with uh, pandemic stories with um, prisoner of war stories. So thank you for your stories. Yeah, thank you so much, Suzanne, for coming tonight and for doing all of the intimacy feasts with me and and teaching me there's more to food than just loving it. Because (laughs) I love it so much, but there are so many other things. So before I end this evening, I would like to read out the names of the participants. And then after I've done that, I will end the podcast. And anyone who wants to stick around for a little bit to say, you know, a hello or a thank you so much, feel free to do that. Because I know being off camera and not saying anything at an event can be difficult because the fun part of an event often is the walking away to the side, waiting for your favorite storyteller, poet, writer to kind of have a moment and going up to them and saying, Oh, I love that so much. And I just need you to know, maybe that's just me <laughs> or maybe that's you. So if you're one of those people who needs that kind of closure to say, hey, thank you, feel free to stick around. Um, so I'm gonna go through our list of folks who've come tonight and shared our stories. Uh, I'm going to, I think, admit Georgia and Pam who I don't know how long they've been waiting in the waiting room. Um, and then I'm gonna say thank you to Aday, to Adrian, to Anne to Bob and Blakeney and Millican Tail and Likely Mead, to Casey, to Dan, Danger W, to Don Zanklin, who is a wonderful storyteller in her own right, to Eli Lara, to Elizabeth Grigg, to Heather Paul, Irma Herrera, Jennifer Ferrante, Caden and Namitha, Kat H, Katie, 
Leslie, Rose, Tsitsi, Megan Bryant, all the way up in Alaska, Michael Lockhart, Nadine, whom is one of my favorite storytellers, and she begged for the thing today. And I was like, oh, I'm so happy you're here. Hopefully you'll get to hear a story from her soon. Pam, who is a wonderful human in her own right, but also mother of one of my favorite people. And I am going to go visit them as soon as I'm allowed. <laughs> Renee, Rylan, my spouse, partner, uh, Sarah, whom is one of my favorite people in the world, Stephen Beaumont, we are now friends. <laughs> Suzanne, thank you so much for coming. Virginia, because Stephen and I are friends, I'm hoping that we will also be friends. <laughs> Georgia and uh, Pam again. So thank you so much for coming to the Iridescent Robot Storytelling Club, for supporting your friends and loved ones, for taking a chance on stories on a Friday night. And I hope you'll join me again next month in March when we get to see Namitha come and tell her own stories. Thank you so much for listening to the Iridescent Robot Storytelling Club featuring Suzanne Evans. It was so wonderful to share that space and listen to real warm stories about food and just feel full after. Uh, the next Storytelling Club is coming up on March 26th with the incredible feature spoken word poet, storyteller, writer, Namitha Ratnapalai from Ottawa. And I'm so excited she'll be here. There's also room for storytellers. So if you hear this and you're like, I have a story on the theme of spring, just loosely related on the theme of spring, or you have a story of hope, hilarity, and or resilience, and you're available at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, send me an email at curiousandkindalmont. That's A-L-M-O nte at gmail.com and uh, pitch your story. We'd love to hear from you and we'll see you on March 26th.